Hello, and welcome to the Upper Bowl GM Podcast. It is Nick Sararis. Took Thursday and Friday off last week because there was nothing I really needed to talk about in the sports universe. And like I said a couple of weeks ago, I was going to keep doing a daily episode of the show as long as I felt like I had something worth talking about. I don't want to just emptily obliviate over the airwaves because I have an obligation to. I want to actually have something worth talking about if I'm going to record an episode because I want to put out something that people want to listen to. And that'll occasionally mean a day or two during the course of the week without an episode. And that's fine. This week coming up, we got a nice array of guests already lined up and booked. Gonna try and get probably one more for the end of the week. I'm not sure which day at the end of the week I'm going to try and get another guest, but thus far we got guest booked for Tuesday and Wednesday. We got nice episodes this week. We spent a lot of time last week. We talked a lot, a lot of hockey, and to keep it going, we got a hockey episode this week. We're going to have a, I'll, we'll call it a good cop, bad cop episode, talking about the Rangers, where my good friend Fitz is going to come back, and that'll be the Wednesday episode. Where we're, he's going to be the good cop to my bad cop about the state of the Rangers, because Fitz and I generally have looked at the Rangers the same way the last few years, and he's a little bit more, you got to relax, and I'm a little bit more of a, well, I don't see any real direction from the team, I'm kind of concerned. So that'll make for a good episode, and tomorrow's episode my good friend Chuck, who came on during the NFL regular season to talk about his Indianapolis Colts. Well, the Colts have a new quarterback, and Chuck has some thoughts about said quarterback, Carson Wentz. So that episode on Tuesday will be a lot of fun. Today's episode, very, very straightforward, just like the Monday episode last week. Best and worst of the weekend. Without football to build our Monday episode around, using the best and worst of the weekend as a template for a Monday episode is very straightforward, and it makes for good conversation because I get to cover a lot of different bases in a short period of time because a lot goes on over the course of a three-day span of the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, especially in the sports world, especially this time of year where you've got hockey and basketball at full swing, you've got the NFL rumor mill at full swing, You've got baseball, spring training, getting rolling. You've got NASCAR rolling. Formula One's a couple weeks away. This is a good time of year to do these kind of recap episodes because there's a lot of information out there, and I know not everybody has the bandwidth to consume as much sports as I do, and it's part of why I do this. There is a public service in keeping the uh, general public aware of what's going on out there. Before we get to the fun content, Got to remind everyone to please help grow the show any way possible. I can do this very fast now. If you're on an Apple podcast, please subscribe. Go to the episode page at the top where you're allowed to subscribe. All the way to the bottom, there are five clear stars. Click the rightmost star. That's leaving a five-star review. Please hit the write a review button and leave a review. That stuff helps it the podcast grow, it helps it move up the charts, and it helps the engagement. If you are on Spotify, if you are on SoundCloud, if you are on Google Play, Audioboom, Stitcher Radio, any of those other platforms, hit the follow button. Those all help. If you find this podcast on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Snapchat, please bump the show. We are growing Not as fast as I want to, but we are growing nonetheless, and this is my baby. I love doing this show because there are always, always, always sports things to talk about. And now that I feel like I've got some good stuff to talk about, I will see you guys on the other side of the drop. going to get on into it. Interesting weekend in the sports world. 
big weekend for the NHL, and the NHL features heavily in the best and worst of the weekend for a couple of reasons, but I'll start with the good first, because, you know, gotta talk about the good stuff, and this was a good weekend overall for the hockey universe, and I want to talk about it in the frame of this being a golden age for the sport of hockey, even though no one aside from hockey fans know that this is a golden age of hockey. There has never been a higher level of talent at the high end of the spectrum, and even the absolute average to below average player in today's NHL would probably fall somewhere on the spectrum of average 10 years ago. If you put someone like today, Mark Stahl, like the 34-year-old, 33-year-old Mark Stahl who was drafted in 2004 in the 2010 NHL, he'd be an above-average defenseman just because of how talented the floor of players is in today's league. Everybody can skate, everybody can handle the puck, and everybody knows what they are doing on the ice because the style of hockey has changed at every single level. We've talked a lot on this show, on the Upper Bowl GM podcast, about how football has changed, how basketball, how baseball, how they've all changed with the times because people who study the sport have found more efficient ways to play it. In football, it's passing more earlier on downs and more frequently. In basketball, it is three-pointers. In baseball, it is swinging for home runs. In hockey, it is the high-end speed guys who can create transition play. Those are the marquee guys, the guys who are faster than everyone else, who can make plays with their legs, because there are versions of the three-pointer, the play-action pass, the home run, the three-run home run in hockey, that we don't think of it like that. I know Steve Valaket on the MSG Network, during intermission, he talks about the Rainbow Road Pass, which is the pass across the crease, which anyone who's ever played EA Sports' NHL franchise knows. The pass from the right to the left or left to the right across the goalie, catching the goalie moving side to side. That is an extremely high percentage play in the hockey world. Generally speaking, that rainbow road pass is about a 25% chance, meaning when you complete the pass to the other person across the crease, that results in a goal about 25% of the time, which is an extremely high percentage chance for the hockey world because you got to remember the average NHL player shoots somewhere between 9 and 10%. So if you're scoring on 25% of a scoring chance from a particular space on the ice, that is more than twice as efficient as your average player's shot. Of course, some shots are worth more than others. That's where you get an expected goal. I'm going to have a video on that at some point, either Monday or Tuesday. It depends when I can finish it. I've been working on it in Premiere most of the weekend, and because my laptop is kind of crappy, it's been fighting me trying to put it together. But it's a brief explainer on how expected goals are calculated and how they work, and it's pretty informational, and that's the general idea of it. And going off of that topic of the golden age of hockey, Saturday was the day of the three M's. I know I'm not the first person to make this point, but the hockey day started at 3 o'clock with Nathan McKinnon in the Avalanche and Golden Knights game set on the golf course at Lake Tahoe, right next to the lake. They only played one period of the game, then it got sun delayed. We'll say three M's. We won't count that first period of that game. The 3Ms start with Austin Matthews on Hockey Night in Canada against the Montreal Canadiens, putting together a nice two-goal effort and a thorough thumping of the Canadiens. The Leafs are a very interesting hockey team. They create a ton of scoring chances, but their goaltending, Frederick Anderson, he's never been the most consistent 
when he's been consistent, the Leafs have been a very strong team during his tenure in Toronto, but when it's come time in the playoffs, he hasn't had those key saves, and their defense does not suppress scoring chances particularly well. They've had a hard time doing that, and it's why they've had trouble this season. I mean, they blew a 5-1 lead to Ottawa just last week. Ottawa is objectively the least talented team in the league. Maybe Detroit is worse, but that's not really saying much. Toronto, when Matthews is rolling like he is, is a legitimate Stanley Cup contender. They have a strong, strong top six, and they have a couple of good defensemen. I like Morgan Riley. His defensive problems are real. They acquired T.J. Brody in the offseason, who's an above-average defenseman. They had Robertson. They had Rasmus Sandin. They've had some issues. They've had some injuries on that back end. But generally speaking, this is one of the better Leafs teams of the last five, six years. Um, we're waiting for them to make that collective leap, uh, as I'm looking to my right, um, watching the Bruins and Flyers game on Lake Tahoe, the outdoor game. Uh it's still 3-2 to two as I'm recording, only in the second period. Plenty of game to go. I do want to finish the pod before the game is over, so I can focus on it because the Bruins and Flyers are probably the 1-2 and two best team in the Eastern Division, the division the Rangers are in, the Islanders, the Devils, the Sabres, the Capitals, the Penguins. It's a very strong division in the sense that no one is that much better than everyone else aside from Boston, who's just kind of outclassing everyone most nights. Boston's a really good hockey team. They're a certifiable Stanley Cup contender. But going back to our three M's, we had Austin Matthews light it up in the 7 o'clock hockey night in Canada game. And then we had Connor McDavid come out in a game against the Calgary Flames and record five points in 30 minutes of game time. And look, like the best player in hockey, which McDavid is, no matter how many times a talking head on NBC in the United States says that maybe it's Nathan McKinnon, maybe it's Austin Matthews, it's not. No matter how much a talking head tries to convince you someone is better, it is Connor McDavid. I remember everyone trying to talk about how good Nathan McKinnon was in the bubble, that he was the best player in the world. He's not the best player in the world. Connor McDavid is the best player in the world, and it is not close. McDavid's combination of speed and vision of the ice is unparalleled. If you did not watch the game on Saturday night, first of all, shame on you. You should be watching Connor McDavid every single opportunity you get. But there was a specific play where he dispossessed someone in the neutral zone with his stick. He didn't have control of the puck, so he kicked the puck up to his stick He's on the right-hand side, so farther away from the TV screen. So if you're watching on TV, he's on the side of the ice closest to the bench. He dispossesses someone of the puck, kicks the puck up to his stick, takes four strides. He's got his head up the whole way, looking back towards the middle of the ice, trying to fake out the goaltender that he's going to pass. And instead, he just rips it. And the goaltender, Jacob Markstrom, did not have a chance because he was playing pass the whole way, because McDavid was so spatially aware, he was able to head fake out the goalie. He did not even have to look where he was shooting, and he was able to bury it. McDavid was the middle of the Triple M's, and then after the sun went down, which is going to come up in the uh, worst of in a minute, but... In the Lake Tahoe game, eventually it did resume at midnight Eastern Standard Time, 9 o'clock Pacific in the time zone where the game was being played. Nathan McKinnon scored a very, very nice goal. If you haven't seen the video NBC posted on a lot of their social media feeds where defenseman Alex Petrangelo of the Vegas Golden Knights saw McKinnon gather the puck with a stride or two of momentum, Petrangelo, who is a certifiable top 15 to 20 defenseman in the entire league. He was the most expensive free agent of this past offseason. Petrangelo was skating backwards. He saw McKinnon gather the puck with a head of steam. Petrangelo, who is a very good defenseman in his own right, said, oh boy, 
like me realizing I just threw an interception playing the computer in Madden. So, yes, McKinnon is right there. He's not better than Connor McDavid. And all three of those teams, as bad as the Oilers' defense is, and as bad as the Oilers' goaltender situation is between Mike Smith and Miko Koisten, and they will make the playoffs. I'd be kind of surprised if Edmonton didn't make the playoffs. Toronto is going to run away with the North Division because they are so much better than everyone else. Montreal will probably make it. And then that fourth spot is up for grabs. Calgary could win it. Winnipeg, who's had some really, really horrendous underlying numbers, could. I don't think Ottawa can make a run. I feel like Vancouver is in too much of a hole. But there's a chance something weird could happen. Someone gets hot at the right time. I mean, Vancouver got to a conference final purely on hot goaltending. It, it's certainly possible that someone gets hot at the right time in a short season and sneaks in. But all three of their teams, the Leafs, the Oilers, and the Avalanche, are certifiable Stanley Cup contenders. And it was nice to see them highlighted on a national stage. Yes, it's unfortunate that in the United States we don't get any games from that North Division unless you have a premium subscription somewhere, whether it's NHL TV, ESPN Plus occasionally has Toronto games. But generally speaking, in the United States, you do not get a chance to watch Connor McDavid or Austin Matthews play hockey with any frequency, which is unfortunate because they are both elite of elite hockey players. And as I look to my left, the Bruins just scored again. It is 4-2 in the second of the two Lake Tahoe games. The Bruins are a certifiable Stanley Cup contender. Yeah, they lost Tory Krug in the offseason. Yeah, they lost Cisneiro Chara, but their top six is still as good as anyone's, even without David Krejci. Yes, I know the Flyers are missing a number of players. But now that I've talked a little bit about the outdoor games at Lake Tahoe, I do want to go into the worst of the weekend, which is, of course, of course, the league not accounting for the possibility that they might have got the weather forecast wrong. And Gary Bettman, commissioner of the NHL, who I've often lampooned for his, la- I'll just call it lack of awareness. He's not a particularly self-aware person. He's not aware of the NHL's issues to the general public out there. It's not the most obvious thing in the world, but Gary Bettman should have accounted for the possibility that the weather forecast might be wrong and that playing a hockey game at noon Western Western Standard Time Zone where the game was being played might result in the sun being directly over the ice, which was a problem. They trooped through that first period on that ice and There were a lot of players losing an edge because the ice surface was not sturdy. It was slushy. There were a lot of ruts. Guys were getting their skates caught in them. They were losing edges. So were the officials. During that first intermission, someone said something to someone because the game got delayed for nine hours. And the NHL's lack of planning in this situation was obvious. The name of the town where this ski resort is, is State Line, Nevada. Where is the state line between? Nevada and California. What do both of those states have a lot of? Sunshine? Warmth? I know the NHL has done these outdoor games a number of times now. We're in the 30s for these outdoor games, and the NHL could not figure out that Playing this game in direct sunlight would result in the parts of the ice with paint on them, meaning the advertising logos, the goalie creases, the red lines, and the blue lines would deteriorate faster because painting that part of the ice makes the temperature for those areas to melt warmer. And it made for a slushy and outright dangerous first period and a nine-hour delay. And the whole point of these outdoor games, especially this year where you couldn't have fans in attendance, and fan attendance is so key to the NHL. The gate, meaning the sales of tickets, make up so much of the NHL's revenue. 
you're playing these games, the game yesterday between Colorado and Vegas, and the game today between Boston and Philly, solely for your advertising partners, Bridgestone and Honda, and for your television partner, NBC, to put these on at a marquee time on your main network, on NBC, Channel 4, the one everybody gets, the one that you don't have to look up because you know what NBC is in your local area because of Sunday Night Football, of Law & Order, of a number of intellectual properties. And because of this nine-hour sun delay, the game was played at midnight on NBCSN and probably did an abysmal overnight number. I know last week the Daytona 500 was delayed for about five and a half hours and it didn't resume till a about 10 o'clock the race didn't finish till about 12 30 and it did an abysmal television rating and that the race did the Daytona 500 last week had fans in attendance so some of that loss was a little bit mitigated by having ticket sales but for the nhl this was an event branded for television and you by playing your game at midnight eastern time where a large swath of your population centers are where your hockey markets are, Boston, Philadelphia, New York, this Northeast corridor where there's, this is one of the hockey hotbeds of the United States. Playing it at midnight Eastern time was telling them that, well, we, we got to get this game in and we don't really care if anyone watches. So there was not adequate planning for this situation and like usual the nhl comes out looking foolish getting clowned and it's missing out the nhl missed out on a marquee opportunity to put itself out there it had people who don't usually watch hockey excited i know a number of my friends and a number of my mutuals on twitter were excited that there was a hockey game on nbc and it looked so cool the mountains in the background the slopes the snow it looked cool and then after one period it was delayed till midnight and not a lot of people stayed up that late to watch the game i know i was one of them but that's also because i was coming off the adrenaline rush of Connor mcdavid going insane i understand that i am an outlier that not every single sports fan is like me who wants to consume sports every hour of every day where if there's not a live event to watch, I'm on YouTube, I'm on Game Pass, I'm on NHL TV, watching old games, trying to look for things if I'm researching for something I'm working on. I understand not everyone has that level of dedication and bandwidth to making things happen. But after the nine plus hours of delays, that's a pretty entertaining hockey game. I can't complain. Vegas and Colorado are two of probably the four or five best teams in the whole league. They're both certified Stanley Cup contenders. They can roll four lines, three pairs. Both have at least one good goalie. Vegas has two with Andre, Mark andre Fleury and Robert Lehner. They've got two really good goaltenders. They paid that pretty price for Petrangelo. They've got a really solid team. They did end up losing Colorado is faster. From what I've seen in the games they played head-to-head -head this year, Colorado is just faster. That doesn't necessarily mean they're better. It does mean they can get to those 50-50 pucks a little bit quicker. And that makes a big difference against a talented team like the Vegas Golden Knights. But talking a little bit more about just the NHL's lack of preparation, awareness. A lot of people didn't know this game was happening on Lake Tahoe until a couple days. If they even knew it was happening until the day of because the NHL did not do a great job cultivating an audience. They didn't really promote it that heavily on areas aside from their national games on NBC, SN during the week on Wednesdays and Sundays. Would it have killed them to, you know, try and flood their social channels with a little bit of content about Lake Tahoe, letting them know about the building process, doing some digital content about the fact they built a whole hockey rink and media center on the 18th hole of a golf course that was easy to find for people that aren't like me, that aren't just, you know, rabid hockey fans? It's frustrating because I talk about this all the time with my friends who are hockey fans, my colleagues who are in the content or the news business we all talk about what a shame it is 
that hockey cannot gather a foothold in the social sphere because of its limitations. It does not have a large national media presence. NBC does not give it marquee billing. It has lower priority than NASCAR. It does not get good television windows. It's got Wednesday night and occasionally Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon, and that's really it in the U.S., and it's part of the problem. It does not have the most, does not have a particularly inclusive group of people representing it, and I don't mean that in terms of diversity. Yes, hockey does have diversity issues. I just mean it in terms of being welcoming and helping people who aren't as loyal and dedicated fans get into the sport. It's got a very strong gatekeeping presence, if you will, of people who don't want less than diehard fans, which is part of the problem. The please like my sport people are a legitimate issue for growing hockey because they jump on anyone who's half-heartedly tweeting about it or posting about it or making content about it, and it leads and it discourages people from sticking with it because they're shouted down, talked down to, that kind of thing. And it's a shame because, like I said, hockey's an amazing, amazing sport. No matter what level, no matter who's playing. NHL, AHL, NWHL, CWHL, junior hockey, European leagues, all of them. No matter what, fundamentally, watching five-on-five hockey on ice is awesome. And as I'm talking, I'm looking to my right, and the Bruins have pulled away firmly. It's been a while since I looked at the TV screen. It is six to two. And then on the other TV screen, the Jets and Canucks are gonna drop the puck in a little bit, a little bit of a nightcap for the hockey world. Lots and lots of hockey, man. It's a good time to be a hockey fan. This compressed schedule is very grueling and probably pretty shitty for the players, but as a fan, I am very much so entertained. Now, now that I've bagged a little bit on the NHL, I do want to talk a little bit about the potential for their new TV deal, which was mentioned on Hockey Night in Canada's broadcast. I forget who the reporter was. I think it was Chris Johnston had mentioned that ESPN had firmly supplanted itself in the discussion of getting back into the NHL game. It's been a long time since the NHL had a presence on ESPN, aside from the occasional Barry Melrose hit on SportsCenter during the Stanley Cup playoffs, or after a particularly big regular season game or a crazy regular season performance. And it would help the NHL to get a presence on ESPN, because ESPN, if it owned the rights, would give it some attention. They would put the topics into rotation on the talking head shows and give it more of a presence on SportsCenter. I do think, though, that if the NHL is going to make some impact with this new TV deal, it needs to be on multiple networks, whether that's ESPN and Fox, whether that's ESPN and NBC, whether that's all three, whether that's ESPN, CBS, I know, needs new TV rights because they lost the rights to college football, the SEC, in two years. The NHL needs to get as much money as humanly possible from whatever cable networks are going to buy the rights because that will go back into the game and help grow the game. That's why NBA salaries ballooned so much in the last five years, because the TV deal for the NBA doubled, essentially. And it's why the Warriors were able to sign Kevin Durant during that offseason, because the salary cap had about a $25, $30 million gap that was not there the year before. And if that were to happen, that could alleviate a lot of the financial stresses on the system right now in hockey because of COVID-19. We could possibly see the salary cap not be flat for two straight years. Instead, maybe just one year, and then for the 2022 season, 2021-2022 season, we could see a rise in the salary cap, which would help a lot of teams. And that's ultimately your goal here. You want the salary cap to go up every single year, and you want it to go up a decent amount, like the NFL does, where it goes up five, ten million every single year, because it means teams are playing, paying for better players, and better players make for a better game. We want guys in the NHL making twenty, thirty, forty million dollars a year, like they do in basketball, baseball, soccer. We want that to grow the game. We want Connor McDavid to be paid comparable to his 
athletes across other fields. We want him making that Mike Trout money, that Leo Messi money. We want our best players to be treated like that because they are just as good. A new TV deal will go a long way in making that happen. Now that I've talked a little bit of good and a little bit of bad, I do want to talk a little bit about the NFL because there are going to be a few NFL episodes this week. Probably going to do Big Board 1.0, talk about probably my top 30 to 40 players in the draft regardless of position in terms of value. I might do a mock draft. I'm not sure where I want to take my draft content thus far. It's pretty early in the process. I do think the Deshaun Watson domino still has to fall. And I do think the Jets need to figure out what they're doing with Sam Darnold before mock drafts can really start to take shape. Because I do think there is ample opportunity for movement in that top 10, and especially that top 5 between Miami and the Jets, who... If they decide to stick with the players they have in-house, they could trade back a couple spots for some extra picks. Wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Honestly, big picture, if Miami isn't taking a quarterback at three, they absolutely should trade down from three and then take the second best wide receiver on the board and get some additional picks. I think Miami should be trading for Deshaun Watson, but that's another story for another day. I'm going to try and get TJ on again soon so we can talk about this from a team-building perspective, but we want to see teams making runs at winning Super Bowls if they are not that far away, and trading for Deshaun Watson, if you're Miami, absolutely tells the rest of the league we think we're ready to win a Super Bowl and we were just a quarterback away. And that's not an indictment of Tua. It's just saying that if the rest of the core around your quarterback is ready to go and you might have to wait a year or two for your quarterback to develop to the point where he could win a Super Bowl, the rest of your core might not be able to fit under your salary cap at that point, and then you're back to square one because you've got to retool the core. So even if Tua does make a leap in a year or two or three, you won't be able to reap the rewards of it because you're paying so much for certain guys, and it defeats the whole purpose. I do think there is room for ample QB movement. We know a number of teams are in the market for a new quarterback. Carolina is in the market. I know San Francisco has made calls. Washington has made calls. The Jets are in the market. The Saints are in the market. The Jets are in the market, the Pittsburgh Steelers. There are so many teams who might be willing to trade for someone or draft someone. I mean, if we're talking about drafting someone, the Falcons don't take a guy at four. I don't know what you think you're really going to do long-term trying to overhaul your roster and still win games at the same time. The Falcons need pretty much a whole defense if they want a chance to win a Super Bowl. And by the time you build a whole defense, Matt Ryan is going to be too old to make that impact. And it's frustrating to watch from a team-building perspective because Atlanta should bring it up at this point because they need so many things. They've invested a lot in their offensive line. They've paid Julio Jones. They've paid Matt Ryan. They gave Devontae Freeman that bad contract, which it eventually had to cut him from. There is talent on that roster, but it probably would have been better served by retooling. And instead of limping to consecutive mediocre seasons, if Atlanta doesn't take a quarterback at four this year, I really don't know what they're doing because they need so much still. Even if you add an elite, there are no elite pass rushers, and no corners worth being taken fourth overall. Who are you going to take it for? Mika Parsons? I don't really want to take Mika Parsons fourth overall. Kyle Pitts isn't a fourth overall pick. There's no pass rusher worth going for overall. If you're not going to take a quarterback at four, trade down. There are going to be partners. Carolina's going to want to move up. Washington's going to want to move up. There are plenty of teams who might want to move up to go get a Zach Wilson, to get a Justin Fields, what have you. And teams should do it. Absolutely. You need to have your quarterback to get it together. You can do it the other way around and try and build the rest of the roster around the quarterback, like the Colts, the stars of tomorrow's episode of the show. 
you can put everything around the quarterback and then try and find one, whether it's Rivers, whether it's Carson Wentz, just plop them in around some good skill position players and a good defense. That's certainly a plausible path to winning. I mean, the Buccaneers did it. They put together an ample core capable of winning a game around uh, average quarterback, and James couldn't do it. So they said, all right, well, Tom Brady's here. We can get Tom Brady. We'll get Tom Brady. We'll the Super Bowl. And they went and won the Super Bowl. Do I think Tom Brady was the number one reason they won the Super Bowl? No, their defense made some leaps. They got some good bouncing. They got some good turnovers. It made a difference, though. That air of legitimacy Tom Brady gave the Buccaneers was a very real thing because historically the Buccaneers are, you know, kind of a joke as a franchise. They haven't made the playoffs since 2007 before this year. This is all a big picture just look at just, it's a good thing when there is roster movement because it makes for fun ideas for people like me. Won't lie to you. The draft is the most fun I have as a football fan because it welds together college and the NFL and you get to think about it from a team building perspective, which is my favorite part of football. And it's my favorite part because team building in football is so different from every other sport because the sheer number of people you need. You need 22 guys and then you need special teams. There's so many pieces that go into building a good football team. And it's why the draft is so engaging in the football world in a way that it isn't for everyone else. And also helps the college football is as good as it is. It's another show for another guy. But yeah, very, very excited for all of this potential movement. I do think Houston is going to end up moving Watson to where, I don't know. I don't think it'll be to Denver, though. I will say that. I know Denver is the betting favorite on a number of sports books. I don't think he ends up in Denver because... I don't think Denver's in a position to be giving up assets for a quarterback right now because they have salary cap questions, they have defense questions. Well, I think Vic Fangio was a good coach. I mean, he got pretty good results out of a defense that didn't have a ton of talent this past season. If you're going to go and give up, you know, two or three first-round picks for Deshaun, and you drop Deshaun onto Denver right now, yeah, their ceiling is a little bit higher. They go from being like a 7-8 win team to like a 10 or 11 win team. I don't think you're a Super Bowl contender with Deshaun if you're Denver. And I don't think that's because of a lack of trying. Denver has good pieces on that offense. Cortland Sutton is a legitimate receiver. Jerry Judy is very good. That guy they had this year, Tim Patrick, was pretty good. They have no fan. They've used a lot of assets on skill positions to put their quarterback in position to succeed. They don't have a great offensive line. Jarrett Bowles, their left tackle, had a nice rebound season this year. He had had a number of bad seasons in a row, was able to put together a nice one this year. I think, ultimately, the market for Deshaun comes down to Miami, the Jets, Carolina, and San Francisco. Those are your four teams. If I had to pick one, I think the Jets make the most sense because they have the most assets. They have the extra picks from the Jamal Adams trade. They have cap space to go get weapons for Deshaun and immediately change the long-term direction of the franchise by bringing him in. Now, when we talk about this, we talk about it in the team-building sense, that teams need a quarterback to contend for a Super Bowl. It is pretty much impossible to win a Super Bowl with a less-than-average quarterback. It's possible. It's really really damn hard. I mean, even when the Ravens won a Super Bowl with Joe Flacco, I mean, they did get some superhuman play out of Joe Flacco. You go back and look at his ETA numbers for that one playoff run when they won the Super Bowl. His numbers are off the friggin' charts. He had a great playoff run. And yeah, that didn't prove to be who he was as a quarterback, but one run, you win a Super Bowl, no one can ever take that away from you, as the great Bill Parcells has said to his players his entire coaching career. <laughs> now, transitioning here to a low point, one of the worsts of the weekend. You gotta get Trevor Bauer off of Twitter, man. There was a point in the offseason where I was pretty convinced the Mets were going to sign Bauer, and I was... I wasn't exactly enthusiastic about it, but I would have sucked it up because he is an above-average to elite pitcher. But now, with the benefit of hindsight, with the benefit of seeing how he's acted just a week into being a Dodger, I'm very glad 
very, very glad that Trevor Bauer is not a Met because he's already causing a ruckus on social media. He's getting into arguments about immigration policy with Dodger fans. He is in a spat with Noah Syndergaard and Marcus Stroman, who, you know, are Mets, over, you know, Noah Syndergaard cracked a joke at Trevor Bauer's expense last week. He said something on Friday night. He said something to the effect of, well, I said I'm sorry and I'll donate to all your charities out of context. And Bauer found the Syndergaard tweet, went back and found a bunch of old Syndergaard tweets where he was chirping fans back and said something about how about you learn how to talk to fans. It's kind of disrespectful. You said these things when Bauer's just doing it instead of doing it because he feels that it's bad that Syndergaard's doing it. He's doing it as a form of whataboutism, which, of course, is the ethos of a lot of Trevor Bauer's arguments. And it's just a good thing that Trevor Bauer is not on the Mets. I, I can confidently say that. Phew. Elias Pettersson just scored a ridiculous goal in the uh, Winnipeg-Vancouver game between his legs in front of the net mouth backwards. My goodness, that boy is nasty at the game of hockey. But back to the Bauer point. I do think the notion of the New York media being harsh on athletes is overblown. I talked that uh, about that quite a bit with Wally Matthews uh, a couple weeks ago. Someone who had covered sports in the New York market for about 30, 40 years. It's not as vicious as people like to make it out to be. Someone like Bauer, though, would have had a hard time because he seems to have particularly thin skin and allows people to rile him up over things. He engages a lot with people on social media, which, you know, like a number of my good friends like to say from time to time, I'm not here to argue. It's not up for discussion. These are my thoughts. I'm not trying to have a debate right now. And that that's fine, but someone like Bauer, who is outspoken, who has some, uh, we'll say, less than popular opinions about certain political and social issues, he, he's going to draw the ire of people, and he has yet to figure out that it's okay to not have an opinion on everything. And all I'm saying is, I hope we get a Dodgers-Mets postseason series, because the circus will be in town again. There is a little bit of a Dodger-Met rivalry based on that 2015 NLDS, excuse me, that first-round series where uh, Chase Utley broke Ruben Tejada's leg, then the subsequent year in the regular season on a Saturday game, which I was at, Syndergaard threw behind someone and got ejected from the game, and there, there's a little bit of tension there. When these two teams meet in the regular season, because I'm pretty sure baseball is going back to its regular schedule composition of games not region-specific, there's going to be a little bit of tension between Bauer and the Mets. Stroman and Syndergaard have said not, like, offensive or rude things, but they've called Bauer out on his bullshit, and we know how baseball players are. They're all kind of big babies, and they don't take that kind of thing well, and it'll lead to... Some, I'm sure, theatrics, some dramatics. I'm sure Trevor Bauer's going to do something over the top, even if he's not pitching during that particular series. He'll make it about himself and cause a scene. He'll throw behind someone. Or if he does it, then Cinderella will do it. There'll be a bench-clearing brawl in a pandemic, and the guys are going to have to wear their masks and all that nonsense. And it'll, it'll be theater that baseball needs. I hope we get a Mets-Dodgers playoff series because if everyone is healthy, these are the two best rotations in baseball when you're talking about the Dodgers, when they have everybody healthy, when you're talking about Trevor Bauer, you're talking about Clayton Kershaw, you're talking about David Price, you're talking about Walker Bueller, you're talking about Dustin May. That's an insane five. And the Mets, if everyone's healthy, you're talking about DeGrom, Stroman, Syndergaard, Cookie Carrasco, and then a number of guys. It could be David Peterson in that five spot. It could be Lucchese. There's a number of options. The Met rotation, uh, Tim Walker, I know they signed last week. There's plenty of options, and I hope we get a playoff series between these two teams because we got the little bit of the underlying beef. We got the really good starting rotation. All of the pieces are there for an outright awesome playoff series. And the last thing I have here, it is a best of the weekend because we want to end the episode on a good note. Just want to talk a little bit about the state of NASCAR from a just from a 
interest perspective. Every now and then, it's good to see outside people getting involved. Alvin Kamara, the Saints running back, sponsored a car this past week. His juice company, that is New Orleans, uh, I think it's Louisiana-based. I believe they have a number of locations in the state of Louisiana. Sponsored a car in the Xfinity series, which is kind of like the AAA for NASCAR, where guys who are developing towards eventually being in the Cup series race in the Xfinity series. It's where teams put guys to develop or for older guys to hang around and stay in competitive shape to eventually be in a spot to take a seat or be available on call for the cup series young guys won this week uh joe gibbs if anyone remembers he was the washington then washington redskins football coach two separate times won the super bowl with them back in the 90s his team, Joe Gibbs Racing, their Toyotas, they won both the Xfinity Series with um, Ty Gibbs, his grandson, and then they won the Cup Series race. Christopher Bell in a the number 20 Toyota won the Daytona Road Course for both series. Toyota Series won. Joe Gibbs has always had a very competitive team. He's had Kyle Busch forever. He's had Denny Hamlin forever. He's had Martin Truex for a number of years. That number that fourth seat, they've had Daniel Suarez. They had Eric Jones. Now they have Christopher Bell. Christopher Bell, very young. Very, very young. We're talking about someone in their early 20s. And Ty Gibbs is only 18 years old. That was his first ever race in the Xfinity Series. And to win in your first race is a big deal. It's not something that happens particularly often. Yes, it is a byproduct of being in good equipment. The, the Joe Gibbs Toyotas are very good cars. And every single series they race in, they always field competitive cars. They always put their drivers in a good position and yes that is a byproduct of their team having more money to put into more cars and yes that does help motor racing by its nature is an unfair business because there aren't salary caps and the teams with more money can spend more money on research and development on just pure equipment on personnel and yeah joe gibbs put his grandson in one of his cars and he won a damn race at 18 and that's pretty damn impressive to win a road course as an 18-year-old in your first ever start, yes, the favorites for the race, um, A.J. Allmendinger and Noah Grigson, both guys who had won a lot of road course races at the Xfinity level. Grigson never made it off a of pit road. He was a lap behind pretty much the entire race. And then Allmendinger got into a wreck with Austin Sindrick at the end of the first stage. Allmendinger lost oil pressure in his car. He wasn't able to finish the race. And it was pretty much wide open. Austin Sindrick was still running up front, even with that damaged car, but Ty Gibbs ended up winning. Again, pretty remarkable for a guy who's only 18 years old and in certain states would only have his driver's license for a couple of months, if that. Impressive to be winning competitive races against good competition. Xfinity is not the Cup Series, but those are good drivers. And for someone who's that young to win, it's a good thing. I do want to complain about one thing. During the Cup Series race on Sunday, there was a sprinkling of rain, and NASCAR threw out a caution flag to let teams put rain or slick tires on their cars if they wanted to. And it's the reason Chase Elliott lost the race. Chase Elliott was up by three to four seconds. And that might not sound like a lot, but like on a good lap, if you were making ground on the leader, you might be a quarter of a second faster on a lap. So to make up a three and a half second gap, you're talking about running like 12 really, really good, perfect laps to make up that kind of ground in a short period of time. And if it weren't for that late flag, Chase Elliott would have won that race. Yeah, good for Christopher Bell. It's good to see young guys win. It'll make the playoff picture a little bit more confusing. In NASCAR, if you win a regular season race, you automatically make the playoffs up to 16 drivers. 16 drivers, 16 different drivers. There's a field of 40. If 16 different drivers won a race, it would be the regular season points champion. And then the next 15 drivers who won a race would make the playoffs. So, in theory, there is a world in which someone who wins a race does not make the playoffs. It's unlikely. Last year, I believe there were 12 different winners of races, and then four people made the playoffs on points. 
this far. We had Michael McDowell win the Daytona 500. And then this week, Christopher Bell winning the Daytona Road Course. Unexpected race winners happen. It's what makes this playoff format interesting. It's why occasionally you have weird people in the playoffs. Like last year, Cole Custer made the playoffs as a rookie because he won the Kentucky race in the regular season. It'll make things interesting in a couple of months. For now, though, it's good to see different people win last year. I won't complain. It was good to see Kevin Harvick and Denny Hamlin, Keselowski, Logano, Chase Elliott. Guys, I enjoy watching Drive, even if I don't particularly like Joey Logano or Brad Keselowski. I can recognize their talent and appreciate how good of drivers they are. It'll make things interesting down the road, but it was an interesting weekend. I enjoyed the road course race. It was a lot more engaging than last year's, the summer road course race. They ran it in August, a couple of weeks before the finale. I believe it was the first or second week of August. There was a lot more entertainment in this race. There were more cautions. There were more accidents. There was more strategy involved. It made for a more entertaining race as a viewer. Yes, I'm frustrated my guy Chase didn't win, but it's okay. You can't win every single road course race. Hope everyone has a nice weekend. I know not everyone uses sports as their entire building block of their schedule like me. And that's why we have the best and worst of the weekend. Going to have a blog up on Gotham SN either Monday during the day or Tuesday about Mika's Zbigniew, his contract with the Rangers. He's got one year remaining after this season. We are in the 2021 season right now. Zbigniew is under contract for 2021-2022, and then he's an unrestricted free agent where he could sign with any team if he makes it to that July 1st deadline. And my story has to deal with the financial implications if the Rangers were to extend him long-term, some contracts of players who are comparable in terms of production that the Rangers could use as a baseline for potential negotiations, and ultimately what I think the Rangers end up doing with Zbigniew. I hope you guys do end up checking that out. Again, real quick, please, if you're on Apple Podcasts, subscribe. If you're on Spotify, Google Play, Audioboom, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, whatever other format, follow please make this pop up in your feed share it with someone else if you think i raise a good point someone else might appreciate send it their way if you think i'm an idiot please by all means let me know in the replies to the tweet or the facebook post or the instagram story wherever you're seeing this if you listen to the episode and you think i'm making a bad point please let me know this is a two-way discussion even though it's just me here by myself on this particular episode this is a two-way discussion. I am producing this in a in relation with the audience. This is about trying to help people understand sports a little bit better through the lens of me being someone who watches way too much sports and understands a lot more than the casual person because I dedicate all of my waking time to it. I will see you guys tomorrow with my friend Shock. We're going to talk a lot about the Colts, and we're going to talk about Carson Wentz. It's going to be for a good discussion. I'll see you guys then.